As always, we are more than excited about the opportunity that God has allowed us and given us this evening to assemble and to gather in the name that we have for the purpose that we have. And as is often the case, we're blessed not only with a good number of our membership at Pippin, but a host of visitors who've come our way. As always, we're delighted to have you with us. We wish each of us to have a wonderful experience in terms of proper and scriptural worship and to do so to magnify and exalt the name of the God of heaven. As we come to this particular lesson this evening, as we know here at Pippin, at least we are moving our way through the Word of God this calendar year. We are seeking to, in fact, read the entirety of it, all 1,189 chapters. And as we come to lessons each Lord's Day morning, they are drawn from readings taken that were to have been read the past week. Tonight's lesson is taken from Deuteronomy 21, which is among the chapters that we read together this past week. As we close in on the end of that book of Deuteronomy, we have found, of course, the children of Israel almost ready to cross the Jordan River. The 40 years of wilderness wandering are nearly completed. They are almost ready to possess that sweet land of milk and honey, that land to which they have been marching now for quite some time, that land which holds so much promise, so much reward, so much blessing from God. Shortly before he died, Moses shared with them some final remarks, and among them will be the very issues that you and I consider this evening. Deuteronomy 21 is a chapter, a passage, that reminds us about some of the features about common matters concerning life. And tonight I would invite you to look with me as we give some thought to the guilt of innocent blood. As we tally up these numbers of chapters, we have now read some 283 chapters of the Word of God, almost a fourth of it in total, as we come to tonight's lesson on the guilt of innocent blood. Some of these comments may well start us on our brief journey this evening. That phrase, innocent blood, it does occur 20 times in the Word of God. And not an insignificant number of them actually falls in this book of Deuteronomy. I would ask you to think in passing. In Deuteronomy 19, there was a not-so-innocent reminder about innocent blood as it related to the cities of refuge and the privilege that would be theirs upon an accidental killing to make it to one of those cities. Beyond that, there was Deuteronomy chapter 21, the very text before us this evening. We shall study that in just a moment. Perhaps one final thought. This matter of innocent blood is not just an archaic thing for, the, for an ancient era. It will, of course, be very needful and also very serious as we think about it this evening. We shall look at a few of those other 20 during the course of the lesson tonight. Up for us first, I would invite your consideration to the following. First of all, what does this text consider? As Jonathan read it for us just a moment ago, a summary of these two verses, they fit into a larger context, and it is to them that I would invite you to consider the following sets of ideas with me. Chapter number 1 of Deuteronomy, or rather verse number 1 of Deuteronomy 21 begins with the following statements. It says, If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it not be known who hath slain him. And there is a number of matters immediately to follow, but we easily appreciate this. When they reach the land this land of Canaan, this land of promise. 
if a corpse were found, a human body, already passed away, but it's not known the nature of the killer. It's not known the nature by which death came about. Homicide, if you please, of this one. We notice that God immediately had a rather serious and stringent set of considerations. Verse 2 says, Then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take an heifer, which hath not been wrought with, and which hath not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him, and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto the people of Israel's charge." and the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. When this body is discovered, they were to ascertain the closest village, the nearest city, and then the elders of that city had some obligations resting upon them. You'll notice again in verses 2 and 3, they, those elders, it says in verse 3, they were to take a heifer and they were to proceed into a rough valley and there they were to behead the heifer, chop its head off. And you'll notice that very attribute or matter indicates a number of considerations and a number of interesting demands. I would invite you to notice some of these following comments. First of all, when we give thought to the heifer selected, it was to be one that had never plowed with it, furthermore had never been in the yoke. That indicated there was to be a careful selection of what may appear to have been a minor detail, but in the final analysis, forgiveness hinged upon these issues. You'll also notice in verses 4 and 5, even the priests had obligation relative to this, not just the elders. Specifically in verse 5, the sons of Levi shall come near for them... The Lord thy God hath chosen to minister. As we begin to lay a foundation for the further considerations, we notice that these were to take effect when they came into that land of Canaan, that special, special land, specially prepared for them. Could it not be well said that that land of Israel was a chosen land for a chosen people until the coming of a special person? It was safeguarded in a special way and looked over by the special considerations of God. Canaan was to be highly regarded. And with that, we notice human life in it was also to be very especially considered. You'll notice one of the final statements on that. As you come near the bottom of that particular slide, is it not easy to see that housed under the verses that you and I just noted is a powerful sanctity and solemnity for human life? 
even a corpse that was discovered was not to be simply thrown off as an unimportant matter. Sometimes maybe you and I have watched television programs in which a body were found in the old western part of our land and someone in duty took the opportunity then to bury that body. Notice here that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to bury it. One had to ascertain the nearest city. A heifer had to be properly selected. Its head had to be removed as God had directed. And furthermore, there was the obligation of the priests who used the blood from that heifer for the purpose of forgiveness. One final thought. You'll notice the statement made in verse number 7. They shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. There was something very polluting to the nature of innocent blood that had been shed. And God did not look upon it lightly. He did not, in fact, look upon it in a neglectful or irreverent fashion. It may well be, in light of those things, we're prepared then to see what it was that befalls us next. Isn't it true that if some of the thoughts on this slide are shown to us and considered before us, we are now in a position to highlight again this matter of human life. We know that this is not the first instance, nor is it the last, in the book of God touching the subject of the sanctity of human life. Look at some of these comments with me. From the very first chapter in all of the sacred volume of God, reference is made to matters not unlike these. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 in which we remember on that occasion that on that sixth day of God's creative activity, man was made in the very image and in the very likeness of God. A statement that had not been made relative to anything else on day one, two, three, four, five, or six. That wasn't said of the animals on the land, in the sea, those animals in the air, none of them. And yet man, of him it was said he was made in the very image of God. There's an attribute of the human family that bears a resemblance, that has within it the characteristic of that immortal spirit of God. Isn't it true, in addition to those kinds of thoughts, the psalmist himself was able to so wonderfully proclaim in Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the spirit of man that thou formest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crownest him with glory and honor. The psalmist made that statement. Indeed, as you and I give thought to that special identity that is you and me, perhaps one final thought would be that marvelous refrain of Paul in the 17th chapter of Acts. As Paul addressed those heathens, if you please, in Acts to Athens and preached the mighty word of God to them, they who were so superstitious and overwhelmed in idolatry, didn't Paul say to them that it's the God of heaven in whom we live and move and have our very being? Sometimes we still highlight that very thought and appreciate the sweetness of our children. But isn't it true, all of us, is it such that we live and move and have our very being in God? You'll notice even beyond that, we have then the sinfulness attached to that willful taking of human life. In Exodus chapter 20, in the very heart of those Ten Commandments, it was to them that that sixth of those commandments, God in four words said, Thou shalt not kill. He was referring to human life. He wasn't referring to animal life. 
He was referring to that life invested as the very image and the very likeness of God. Other translations, both in Deuteronomy 5.17 and that one in Exodus 20, highlighted as thou shalt not murder. It may well then be the shocking character of how often we appreciate the existence of murder, not only in the present era, but really throughout the various ages past. Otherwise, you'll notice in Matthew 19, even the Son of God Himself, Jesus, quoted these and made reference to them as He was asked by that gentleman, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And among the things Jesus said, Thou shalt, thou shalt not kill. It may well be in light of those kinds of statements that isn't it still interesting some things God did not say? He simply affirmed, Thou shalt not kill. He didn't say, Thou shalt not kill young people or Thou shalt not commit, kill women. That was a blanket appreciation of the wonderful characteristic of human life and how that man is to respect and honor it and appreciate that it is because of the very nature of its attachment to God. It may certainly be also said that as far back as Genesis 9, we have statements reminding us on that occasion of what Cain had done. You may remember as he had killed his brother Abel and the punishment placed upon him, several chapters later after the flood, comments made about Noah and his family and the evil of murder. Surely, as you and I think so often about that matter of murder, it takes us back to several statements in Exodus 21. Amongst those commandments that God gave, He had specified a number of things about the taking, the willful taking of life. Maybe at this point, having said enough about that, isn't it wonderful to notice how different Jesus as well as the other biblical writers referred to life Human life, the love that should characterize it, the special and eternal nature of it. You and I are immortal spirits. Never will we cease to be. Once we're conceived in the womb of our mother, we shall never cease to exist. It's indeed true we exist for a while in this flesh, but the time will come that we shall lay off this flesh, departing into the realm beyond this one, but yet we are still alive, and we are still as existent and still in many ways as aware as ever. That thought about the eternal significance attached then to the nature of this life and the character that it shall stand before God. Some of those last thoughts on that same slide do help us see that that's so different from some of the other attributes of other life. We remember in the book of Genesis, in chapter number 1, on day number 3, God created plant life. Remember that the waters were brought together, the dry land appeared, and furthermore, the grasses and the various herbs began to also appear day number 3. The book of God says nothing, though, about an evil directly attached to ending plant life. You and I know that in the garden we can reap those things. We can even, as it's necessary, take care of those matters. And it's considered a vital part of this creational aspect of God. Two days later, on day five, there was animal life that was created by God. Life that filled both the waters and the air. But you may remember that God later said, Have dominion over them. 
You and I were given the power and the obligation to subdue them, and that's entirely in light of the characteristic of God's creation, Genesis 1.28. No wonder then as we come to the bottom of that slide, we must appreciate that animal life is not the same as human life in this respect. Though we appreciate animals, we often have them for pets, they are not the same as humans. They are not such that that immortal spirit that is you and I is characteristic of them. It may well be, then certainly it's fair to say that this text before us, Deuteronomy 21, opens up some additional discussions like these. I would invite you to consider some of the following about this especial reference to innocent blood. It is significant that twice God used that phrase, not just a shedding of blood, but it was innocent blood. What may God have meant by that? What could be some beneficial considerations from it? And how should you and I see the other ways that God uses that phrase? This innocent blood. First of all, notice that that phrase occurs no small number of times in the sacred Word of God. You may remember in 1 Samuel 19, even there, that mention is made as it related to Jonathan as well as to David. Wasn't it true that Saul had a desire to kill David? He tried more than once. But yet as Jonathan spoke to his father, even he said to his own dad, Why do you have an interest in the innocent blood in killing him? For that, of course, Saul became rather angry at his own son. But nonetheless, Jonathan made a reference to the innocent blood of David with respect to Saul's desire to end his life. The nature of that murder perhaps brings us to that rather sad, sad saga of 2 Kings 21. Here, among all the kings that ancient of the ancient era of the supposed people of God, there were very few more wicked than Manasseh. His reign was evil. He reigned 55 years. And during that time, much evil was wrought by his desire and much evil was wrought by the legislation he put in place. But among the things listed, perhaps we should take very much note that one of the sins that is attached to his name till this day is very much he shed innocent blood. Manasseh was one who in fact seemingly took pride and joy in the shedding of innocent blood among the ancient people of God. For that, God looked upon him in infamy. And for that, of course, a very sordid state existed in his reign. You'll also notice, shockingly enough, even the children of Israel were guilty of shedding of innocent blood. Psalm 106. We know that it occurred by way of in part the evil attached to their idolater sacrifices. They sacrificed their own children. Isn't that still an almost shocking thing? To take your live son or daughter, little baby boy or girl, and give it over to a flaming set of arms from an idol, and yet they did it. They did it. Beyond that, you'll notice that God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Seven things God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. And among the things therein listed, one of them is hands that shed innocent blood. Someone who willfully murders, takes the life in an innocent fashion of one, God says He hates that. Isn't it fair to say that if God hates it, your attitude toward it and mine should be the same as He is? 
perhaps finally you'll notice on this slide that Israel sinned. You'll notice from Isaiah 59. That passage that has in part things that are well known by you and me, the very definition of one of the things that sin brings, the first two verses of that chapter recollect for us that sin's what separates a person from God. Shortens God's hand towards you, turns His ear from you that He won't hear, but then in the continuing exposition of that moment, He identifies an idea like this one. Israel sinned in not pursuing justice, and furthermore, doing violence and shedding innocent blood. Even God's own people were not immune from this very, very sad activity. Perhaps finally on that slide, one of those enemy nations to Israel, the very descendants of Esau, the nation of Edom, they, among other things, were guilty of shedding innocent blood, and they also were held accountable by the God of heaven for it. It surely is fair to say that all of those things, those biblical references, bring us to make the translation to the day in which we live. Roll forward now centuries in time with me until the year 2014 A.D. in the United States of America. We know that we live, of course, in a global international environment, but yet as it relates to the shedding of innocent blood and the characteristic of the taking of life, and that matter known as murder, there is much that might be said. I simply would like to share some statistics with you. Statistics that I suspect will be as troubling for you as they were for me. Statistics that will begin like this. In the year 2011, of course just three years ago now, in our country alone, not counting the rest of the world, you'll notice 15,000 homicides, murders if you will, were committed. In our country alone, 15,000 cases that were cataloged in this particular way, and we shall find in a moment it wasn't nearly all the deaths that occurred. You'll notice even beyond that, if you take the time to give consideration, that means about every 35 minutes there's a murder in our country, at least three years ago. Every 35 minutes. By the time this lesson is drawn to its close, one more person will have died at the hands of an innocent consideration. You'll notice even beyond that, quite often we know what some of the reasons might have been. Perhaps it was prompted by drugs, perhaps prompted by carelessness or drunkenness on some occasion, maybe prompted by any number of sinful activities. That given consideration, though, does tell us that that matter of life and that matter of death is in fact still such an incredible thing. Keep in mind, again, God said if one corpse is found, this is what needs to be done. In that land you find the nearest city, the elders and the priests are to engage in this activity as they bring this heifer down to a rough valley. That rough valley, by the way, is simply a valley in which there's running water. Because again, water was going to be necessary for an aspect that was to follow. And yet today, so often, life seems so shallow. It seems to be ended with such ease and ended with seemingly very little, if any, penalty. It ought not be so. Life should be respected far more highly, with great a deal of integrity, and seen as an aspect of the very attribute of the God of heaven in whose image and likeness it's made. 
As you give thought to that, though, the matter does worsen in some ways, believe it or not, as you come to the next part of that slide. For you see, there is innocent blood shed, arguably, even more noteworthily and by greater volume in the following fashion, the attribute known as abortion. I would ask you to notice some of these considerations. In the United States alone, on average, there's about 125 abortions every hour. Enough to make you cry, isn't it? 125 every hour. To cast that forth, you'll notice that means on average every day, there's about 3,000 of them. Every single day. Not only that, the translation... In this year alone, just the year 2014, we've now only barely completed three months. There has already been over 290,500 abortions in less than four months. You'll notice that since January the 22nd, 1973, the so-called birthday of Roe versus Wade, there have now been over 56.7 million abortions worldwide. In fact, I stated that incorrectly. In this country, worldwide, the number is well over 1.3 billion since, again, January of 1973. The sheer number of deaths, the sheer number of evil wrought in it. You might be of a mind to appreciate that that much volume, that much consideration, and yet, of course, it's legalized in our country and has been since that occasion. I would ask you to think then about how that those are listed separately than those other murders above. But what about God's viewpoint toward it? The consideration from the Word of God relative to it? Look at some of these verses with me. In Psalm 139, beginning in verse number 14, we have a statement that reads like this. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And immediately the psalmist was lifted to the heights of consideration and reflection upon the blessedness of his body, the characteristics of which it was capable, and the marvelous wonder of the one who fashioned it. But then he didn't pause there long, for in the very next verse, verse 15, and those verses that follow, he went on to describe the formation of those elements while even in the womb of his mother. He highlighted that God even looked upon those forming elements with favor and described them in such a sweet and lovely fashion and appreciated that even before they were fully formed, God knew him well and was well apprised and aware of that which he would become. Doesn't that highlight for us the sweetness of that which exists in the womb of a mother and the human life that's there? It is fair to say David knew it well by the inspiration of God and he delivered it for all of us to consider throughout all these ages ever since. That passage perhaps leads us to another one in Isaiah 49. There, not far from the end of that noble prophetic book, we find that God reminded Isaiah of the greatness of this thought when again, even before Isaiah was formed, God was aware of the prophetic office that He would hold and the character of the one that He would become. Do you and I ever wonder about what that child shall be? What will he be like when he grows up? What will she be like when she grows up? 
may I say, God knows already. He knows whether the life would be snuffed out in what's called abortion or whether it shall grow and rise to maturity and therein be a productive citizen both in this kingdom and in the kingdom of God. Perhaps we should remember what Jeremiah affirmed. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we remember in verses 5 and following, again, God speaking of the prophet and to the prophet made observation that even again before formed, God knew that He would be a prophet and that He knew what great work He would wrought for the kingdom of God to strive to teach and to assist those people of that ancient land of Israel. Whether it be Isaiah, whether it be Jeremiah, whether it be the opportunity to think about that description of David in Psalm 139. All of it leads us to a convergence and a conclusion about the specialness of life. It may well be that we should also appreciate that interesting refrain made concerning a king of the ancient era. In Ezekiel 28.15, here the king of Tyre was under discussion. Inasmuch as his kingdom would be judged because of their iniquity and because of their evil, nonetheless, with respect to that king, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, said, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thine heart. Here was a gentleman, and of him it was said he was perfect. That, of course, indicates that he wasn't born in a sinful state. He wasn't born in this state of iniquity apart from the grace and beauty of God. It says, when iniquity was found in thine heart, when the time came that he chose to sin, then he was one that was estranged from God by the sin that he'd committed. You'll notice among the last things on that slide, this interesting consideration about the very nature of the baby Jesus One of the words used with respect to that babe, we remember that the babe that was born there in Bethlehem and he was laid, of course, in the manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. But notice he's called a babe, B-A-B-E. He had already left his mother's womb. He was a little baby boy, you and I well know, but isn't it interesting? The very same word used to describe the baby Jesus in the previous chapter was used to describe John while still in his mother's womb. Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John, and she too was said to be carrying a babe. It was the very same word. Doesn't that highlight for us that that marvelous human being that existed in Elizabeth's womb was also a human being to be recognized and respected? Just as surely as that baby born to Joseph and to Mary also was highly respected and prized. Today there is such a distinction made. Once that baby enters the world, it's looked upon as a very special human life, and few, if any, would think about killing it. But it seems as though not much problem is had by some to kill it while it's still in the mother's womb. Those kinds of abortions that we have read about, heard about, listened to descriptions of them, they're almost staggeringly cruel sometimes, aren't they? One final thought on that slide surely would be this one. According then to the teaching of the book of God, that human life commences at the time of conception. It doesn't commence at the time of birth. It has started some nine months on average earlier than that. And at that time of conception forward, we have the union of that which is of the male and that which is of the female. And that result is of it is by God given an immortal spirit. 
the text of the Bible does tell us, doesn't it, that it's the God of heaven that formeth the spirit of man within him. Zechariah 12, verse 1. Later in the New Testament, didn't that rhetorical writer, that question ask of us in Hebrews 12, verse 9, that hath not God formed the spirit of man within him? At that moment of creation, God invests that life with the spirit in mortal character. And as we noted earlier, never shall it cease to be. It could well be in light of those things that we now reflect again on Deuteronomy 21. This corpse, this body that was found, takes us back now to the text that was read earlier, verses 8 and 9. The blood shall be forgiven them. It also says, so shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood. That particular st statement that concludes that re reading in verses 8 and 9, God does not look lightly upon the shedding of innocent blood. He does not look with a blind eye, if you please, upon that activity. Nations were punished because of it. When they were given to the shedding of innocent blood, when they gave the fullness of their capability and action to the taking of innocent life, God did not forget it. We noted earlier that one of the things for which Edom was judged, she'd said it, she had shed innocent blood. And when we think about ancient Israel, we mentioned earlier that King Manasseh. I would invite you to think about some of the things that befell ancient Israel due to the sins of Manasseh's reign. More than once among the prophets of the Old Testament, there was a reflection upon Manasseh and his shedding of innocent blood has led to the following consequences. And among those things was the great deal of anger and wrath that God shed forth to that people. To captivity they went, often given to very dire circumstances as we've been studying on Sunday morning in the Bible study hour. Perhaps it's fair to say surely that when God saw the shedding of innocent blood... It was a rather frightening exposition for what would lay in the future of those people. What about our land? The innocent blood that seemingly is shed by the gallons around us every day. The innocent blood that seemingly is shed without much thought, with so little significance in the mind of many. We as a nation, could it be that we shall pay for this? Could it be that we also will be judged by the God of heaven and the anvil shall fall and the gavel shall strike and God will be fed up to a point with the sins of this nation? May we with haste turn back to a frightful desire. And did you notice the way it ended in verse 9? It shouldn't be taken from its context. That does read in such a grand fashion. It says, "...so shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood." From among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. As long as Israel, with respect to this body, this corpse, as long as they did what was right, there would be a proper atonement with respect to that blood. But when they refused and did not, due to apathy, due to indifference, due to inconvenience, or whatever else may have been the case... But doesn't that reflect rather poorly in some ways upon the modern era? Due to inconvenience, indifference, apathy, or otherwise, lives are lost, babies are slaughtered, all because 
A young man got a young woman pregnant but didn't want the consequences. That's a tragedy, isn't it? That's an absolute shame because innocent blood shed with that property of that abortion. It could be then in light of those things. Why don't we go to the following slide in which I would ask you to make a final set of thoughts and the lesson will be completed. The children of Israel were reminded on a number of occasions about the specialness of human life. As often as they were to slaughter animals for sacrifices and take animals for the proper offerings and to use for food, never was human life to be taken unless it was by the verdict of the God of heaven for crimes committed. There were certain crimes God said put them to death, like adultery, homosexuality, witchcraft, and other things. But you'll notice that human life was to be so especially regarded May that kind of attitude again be prevalent among people. May we as a nation again respect it and recognize that when innocent blood is shed, God does not forget quickly. Rather, there shall be a judgment because no atonement made properly. One final thought. As we give recognition to this statement by God on this occasion and the innocent blood... Doesn't it remind us of the fact the Son of God came? He came that all of us might have our sins forgiven and that we might have the precious honor of standing justified, sanctified, holy, and proper in His sight. I realize we wouldn't uphold the kind of deaths and innocent blood killing that we have studied about tonight, but we do have the obligation to set before not only our family but those others that we know the fullness of that Word of God, and the obligations that it does have. One of those things would help us see, hopefully we can put into office those that would have a greater respect for what God's Word teaches, and those that would have a higher appreciation for turning to a higher authority than, than themselves. In so doing, Israel was to enter the promised land with things like this ever on their mind. We do learn later that they didn't remember it nearly as often as they should, and they didn't follow it nearly as thoroughly as they ought. They too were given to the very things we learned earlier in 2 Kings 21 and Psalm 106. Tonight, if there would be one or more in this audience, maybe your spiritual life is not in order. All is not well with your soul. Matters have been wrought in your life, and you know that God isn't pleased. You've made choices and decisions and walked pathways apart from the grandeur of God's Word, and you're not in a covenant relationship with Him tonight. That covenant is only formed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This very evening, if there would be one or more in this audience that's never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, why not tonight? Why not this very evening? That plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then humbly and submissively be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. When Saul was told that in Acts twenty-two sixteen, he was told, And now why tarriest thou? And may I ask, why do you wait this very night? If you have known what it was to be a faithful Christian... You were in fellowship with God and His Son and in fellowship with the congregation. But that cannot be said anymore. You've walked away from your position of faithfulness and just like several of those churches in the book of Revelation, 
you too have lost your first love. Why not come back to that first love tonight? Let us pray with you, beseech us to pray to God on your behalf. He has promised to hear and answer your prayer. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 10. This very night, if we could be of any assistance, Brother Adam has chosen this hymn of encouragement, and this would be the perfect time, even now, for you to come while together we stand and while we sing.